Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. All right, we're going to uh, go back into our series in Revelation here. I'm going to cover two letters to the churches today. And we're going to look at the letter to the church in Pergamum and the letter to the church in Thyatira. Uh, all the rest of chapter 2, verses 12 through 29. Uh, we're going to finish off today, and uh, these two letters, a number of parallels between what Jesus says to both these churches, and that's why it works to do both of them at once. And I'm going to read to you the letter to the church, Pergamum, verses 12 through 17 of chapter 2. And Jesus says this, all of this is, is Jesus. It's all in red letters. Those of you who have Bibles that, that uh, color the words of Jesus, these are all uh, physically the words of Jesus. And so, 2 verse 12 starts by saying, Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Uh, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who has killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Bow your heads with me and close your eyes, and let's ask Jesus, even as we go through these words, these words are meant to inspire passion, especially these words here in Revelation. Let's ask him to work that into our hearts. Lord Jesus, we come to you today, and thank you for the freedom we have to gather together in worship and to study your word and to, and to love you. And Jesus, I just pray, I don't want to just speak a bunch of words, but I pray that through the preaching of your word this morning, your Holy Spirit would stir in us an increased zeal for you. In your name we pray, Jesus, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, let's work our way through this. Verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. In a number of the letters to these churches, Jesus introduces himself with two titles. Uh, in this letter to Pergamum, he uses only one. I am the one who has a two-edged sword. And as we're going to see as we work through this letter, that is both an encouragement to those Christians who are doing well in the church, and it is a warning to those who are not doing well, but he is the one who holds the two-edged sword. He is not a passive God, Jesus. And in verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell. Now, uh, seven letters to these churches, okay? Only two of them. This one here to Pergamum and the one we looked at last week to Smyrna, those are the only two where Jesus does not start off by saying, I know your works, okay? And that's important to notice, okay? Even in its absence, it's important to note it because Jesus is passionate about our actions. He's passionate about our behavior, and he is certainly passionate about our works. Not that we can earn our salvation impossible. Salvation is by grace alone. But if you have truly put your faith in Jesus then there are certain works, zeal for the Lord and love for people and generosity and sermon hardness, there are certain works that are going to come forth out of your life by the power of the Spirit. And if they're not there, Jesus notices. And if they're there, Jesus notices. But this is one of only two letters where Jesus does not start by mentioning works. In this case, he says, I know where you live. I know where you dwell. Okay? And the reason he says this is what comes next, where Satan's throne is. 
okay? So that's never a good thing to hear about your community, right? That's not something you put on, on the town, welcome here, welcome to such and such a town where Satan dwells, okay? You don't, you don't put that there. You don't brag about that. Oh, that's where you live, right? Okay, so this is a spiritually very dark place, okay? This is a very spiritually dark place. Jesus actually says to them, I know where you live. You're in a very difficult place, okay? There's lots of difficult places in the world, and there's lots of difficult cities here in Asia, but this is the only one where Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, okay? So this is a very, very dark place spiritually. Now, probably there's even a physical place where Satan's presence is, is concentrated, um, there was an altar there at uh, Pergamum. Uh, so Pergamum was, this, was a city around sort of this mountain. And uh, so the, this mountain went up about 800 feet, and then it was flat at the top, and they had a number of temples. But the main temple there was this huge altar to Zeus. And Zeus was like the chief of the gods in the Roman and Greek pantheon, Okay. And so they had this massive altar to Zeus that you could see for miles and miles. It was 115 feet wide, it was 110 feet deep, and it was 20 or 30 feet high. But the thing about this altar to Zeus is it actually looked like a throne, like the throne of a giant. Like some kind of gigantic being was sitting on this throne at the top of the city. I've got a picture, a painting of it. And uh, where the red arrow is pointing there, you can see that. Uh, so there's a bunch of other temples and stuff to different gods on the top of this mountain. But there on the top of this, you know, tabletop cliff here, you can see that is what a throne would have looked like in ancient times, that a, that a Caesar or an emperor would, would sit on there, some kind of gigantic throne at the top of the city. And uh, Jesus says, I know where you dwell. And it was obviously uh, a, a place of real demonic power and spiritual darkness. And Jesus says to them, I know where you live. And you live where Satan's throne is, okay? And then he go, and, then he, and, and it's a tough place to live, right? Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. So they've already had people killed uh, from their church. Antipas, we don't know much about him. He was a church leader. Other than that, the Bible doesn't, we don't know anything. Uh, church tradition tells us, so uh, it's very likely that this is true, but we can't know for sure. It's not in Scripture, and, uh, and it's not attested to by a number of different sources, but church tradition tells us that Antipas was dragged away by uh, some of the priests of one of the temples there in Pergamum, and they actually put him inside a hollow bronze bull that they used for sacrifices and roasted him alive in that, in that bull. So it was a horrible way to die. And you can imagine this little church. Okay, this isn't a, a mega church. This isn't a you know, church like ours with, with buildings and multiple services and stuff. This is a small church, and they're hanging on. And one of their leaders has been killed in a, in a horrific way. And so Jesus actually, he really commends them. He says, yet you hold fast my name. I know where you live, okay? He doesn't say, as he does with so many of the other churches, I know your works. And we're going to see that in the letter to the church in Thyatira. That's because this church of Pergamum, they're in such a dark place. They, they, there is no lots of works coming out of this church. This church isn't planting a bunch of churches. This church probably never sent money overseas to missions. They may never have planted many churches. They will never have had, you know, big services or anything like that. And what I love about this is Jesus says, yet you hold fast my name. That's all he's requiring of them. 
in the darkness and the pressure, the crushing pressure of where they are, Jesus isn't saying to them, hey, in order to impress me, you need to do this, 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 and this. Jesus says, all I want from you and what I'm so happy with is you are hanging on. And I think that should be a tremendous encouragement to some of us as individuals as well. You know, there's times in our lives, there's times in people's lives, and sometimes you look at other people around you, and they're giving lots, and they're reaching out to people, and they're serving, and they're leading, and they're doing all these things, and you start to feel condemned. I'm not getting as much done as someone else. But you know, there's times in life when you're just going through things that are so horrific. I know people in this church who are going through things that are so terrible, and it's crushing. And in those times, Jesus is not asking you to do a whole bunch of stuff for him. He's saying, all I want from you is hold on. And if you hold on, there is tremendous, tremendous, that is, that is a great work in and of itself, is just to hang on. Now, of course, for those of us who are not under that kind of crushing pressure, obviously, Jesus uh, expects more of us. You know, a church like ours, if all we did was hang on, if all we did was hang on barely, uh, on judgment day, that wouldn't be a commendation from Jesus. It would be a rebuke. He would say, you wasted. Yes, Pergamon, they were under crushing pressure. All I asked them was, hang on. But you guys had all kinds of freedom, all kinds of knowledge about the Bible, all kinds of material wealth. You had all of that, and all you did was hang on. That wouldn't be a compliment, okay? But the point here is, Jesus has very different expectations. When people are under crushing pressure, the most important thing is just hang on. Just hang on to Jesus through whatever you're going through. Don't get bitter. Don't give up. Don't walk away. Just hang on, and there's great reward for you. Yet I have, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. But now you'd think, after that commendation for this poor church, you'd, you'd think that Jesus wouldn't have a rebuke, but he does have a rebuke for this church as well. And it's a very serious one. And he says this in verse 14. He's, he is zealous. He he. Jesus doesn't mess around. There's certain things he just doesn't tolerate. And there are no excuses. Even if you're a tiny church in a very spiritually dark place under crushing pressure, there are things Jesus will not tolerate. And he says this, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Okay, so Jesus says, I have something against you. You're tolerating this group of people in your midst. Now, the main thing is, I want you to notice those two things, food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality. This is going to come up in the letter to Thyatira as well. Those two things, Jesus says, I don't care how much pressure or persecution or stuff you're going through. I cannot abide by that. When you give your life to Jesus... There are certain things he de- will not, under any circumstances, tolerate, and, and those are two of them. Sexual immorality and idolatry won't tolerate it, okay? And so he says, you've got some in your midst that are teaching this, and, and some of them, you know, and you have some who hold to the teaching of Nicolaitans. Now, nowhere in Scripture, this, these Nicolaitans pop up twice. We don't know anything about them from history outside of the Scripture, they pop up in this letter to the church of Pergamum. They also popped up in the letter we looked at a couple of weeks ago to the church at Ephesus. In neither place does it tell us exactly what they were teaching, but there's something we can learn and that I want to point out. And if we, if we go to the, to the letter to the church of Ephesus, I want to point something out. In the letter to the church at Ephesus, Jesus actually commends the church at Ephesus, and he says, yet this you have, speaking to Ephesus, something good that they had done. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Okay. So there's a time, first of all, there's a time and a place for the church to hate things. Not people, but there's a time and a place for the church to hate. 
There's certain works and certain teaching that the Lord really hates. But the reason I want to bring this up is because sometimes Christians who are really passionate about doctrine, by the way, I'm passionate about doctrine, and proper doctrine is really, really important for proper living and proper worship, absolutely. But sometimes Christians who are really passionate about doctrine, they'll look at that, you know, that top passage there to Pergamum, and they'll, and they'll look at Jesus is mad at this church for, for allowing this teaching of the Nicolaitans in their midst, and they'll talk about how important doctrine is to Jesus. But what I want you to know is that whatever the Nicolaitans were teaching, it wasn't just wrong doctrine. There are lots of, I mean, right, proper doctrine is really important. Don't get me saying it's not important. It is important. I'm just saying that's not what Jesus is mad at this church for. There are lots of doctrines that Christians can disagree about that Jesus does not get mad at you because you're that, okay? I mean, the classic one, you, you know, Calvinism, Arminianism, uh, you know, sovereignty of God versus free will. You've got very godly Christians on both sides, you know, post-trib, pre-trib. I think these are important debates. I think they, they, they matter for how we prepare uh, for Jesus' return. They really do matter. But at the same time, uh, Jesus isn't mad at someone because they're post-trib or pre-trib. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? And there's, there's tons of little, there's tons of, I won't even say little, they are important matters, no question, but Jesus isn't mad at someone because they're on one side or the other of these doctrinal debates, okay? He wouldn't rebuke this church and say, but you've got some people there teaching, you know, Calvinism, or you've got some people there teaching, you know, pre-trib or whatever it is. He's not, absolutely not, or some other doctrinal difference that Christians have. And the reason I know this isn't just about doctrine, it's a specific thing that they're teaching is because of what he says in, to Ephesus there. In, in Pergamum, he highlights what these Nicolaitans are teaching, but in Ephesus, he highlights what the fruit of that teaching is, and he says, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So let me tell you why Jesus is upset at Pergamum for allowing this teaching. Whatever the teaching was, it was leading Christians to live in immorality. And Jesus says, that I cannot, te- I cannot tolerate. It's, this is not just a difference of doctrine that Christians can have, and I'm not mad at either side for having it because you've got godly people on both sides. No, no. What he hates about this teaching is, whatever this teaching is, it is encouraging Christians to be comfortable in their sin. And probably, judging by the passage it's in, my thinking is it probably has to do with sexual immorality and idolatry. But Jesus says, I hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Their teaching is leading people into sin. And Jesus says, I can't stand that. And the interesting thing is here, too, he's addressing this. What's, what's really fascinating to me is he's addressing this to the whole church. But it's for a few people, right? So he says, first of all, I commend you all because you're holding fast my name. But now he says, I have something against you, the whole church. And look at the top there. You have some. It's not everybody. In that top line there, you have some who hold the teaching of Balaam, okay? So why is he rebuking the whole church for something a few are doing? And I'll tell you the reason why. It's because they're tolerating it in their midst. Jesus is really zealous about the purity and passion of his church. So he doesn't direct his rebuke even at just the sum. He's directing his rebuke at the whole church. He's saying, how can you allow teaching like this? Doctrinal differences in church, that happens, absolutely. No, one, you know, no two Christians probably agree on every single possible thing. 
That's not the issue. But how can you as a church allow this kind of teaching that encourages Christians to be comfortable or in sin and compromise, how can you allow that in your midst? And he's rebuking the whole church for tolerating it. See, there is actually a time for unity in a church, and there's also actually a time for disunity. And the time for disunity is never over some simple doctrinal difference. But when it comes to immorality and compromise, Jesus says there is a time for disunity and there is a time for absolute emphatic intolerance. Not of people, but of teachings and ideas that lead people into sin. And and I think that's just so important to repeat often from the pulpit because there's such a push. I hear so many conferences nowadays and they're all about, you know, being one and having unity in the church. And by the way, I think unity in the church is important. Jesus prayed in John 17 that we may be one. I love that. He does want us as believers to be one with each other. But not but oneness is not a characteristic that stands in and of itself. Lots of people in this world are unified in terrible things. There are groups of people that are unified in terrorist ideals. That's not a good kind of unity. There are people who are unified in all kinds of sexual immorality and all kinds of stuff like that. There's all kinds of unity in this world that isn't a good kind of unity. And the church isn't supposed to have that kind of unity. We're supposed to have a oneness in the right things. Oneness in our love for Jesus. Oneness in our love for God's word. Okay? And oneness in our zeal for holiness. So Jesus says, this I have against you, the whole church, that you're allowing this in your midst. And so he says this next, therefore repent. By the way, isn't that amazing? You can always repent. There's always, you can always repent with Jesus. Therefore repent. Now look what he says not. next. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. I, you, them. Okay, the implication there is it's better for you if you deal with it on your own. But if you don't deal with this teaching in your midst that's teaching Christians that it's okay to compromise, that's teaching Christians it's okay to be comfortable in sexual immorality, if you don't change that, I'm going to come to your church and I'm going to war against them. And again, the implication is it's better for you if you deal with it than if I have to come and deal with it. That's the Jesus we serve. Is he full of grace and mercy? Yes, that's why it says, therefore repent. But is he zealous for holiness? Absolutely. Is he awe-inspiring? Is he worthy to be feared and worshipped? Absolutely. Now, of course, many Christians might have a problem with this idea of Jesus, and, they don't, and that's because they ignore large swaths of the Bible. And they think Jesus would never go to war with a Christian. Jesus only ever forgives Christians, and he always forgives when we repent, absolutely. But do you think Jesus would never go to war with a Christian? And, uh, and, but the answer to that is, it's in the Bible. That's not me arguing something. That's what Jesus said. I'm going to go to war. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to go with them. So you better deal with it, or I'm going to have to go to war with them, other people in his church. And you say, well, what could this mean that Jesus would go to war with believers in a church? Well, if we go to the next letter, I'm going to go to the letter to the church in Thyatira. I'm going to read through that. And Jesus gets even more specific on some of these things. And so let's read it. If we go to verse 18, Jesus says this to the church at Thyatira and the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works. Look at, there it is. I know your works. So Thyatira, he says, I love it 
I can see that your belief in me is real. I can see your works. Okay, I can see you taking care of the poor. I can see you doing justice and looking after the orphan. I can see you, I can see your works. You're missional. You're generous. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. And that's your latter works to see the first. I love that last line. They're growing. This is a great church. This is a great church. And that's your latter works exceed the first. So when they gave their life to Christ, you could see it in their actions. These people have been changed. They're on fire for the Lord. And yet there's been growth even since then. Their latter works are even better than their first ones. They're growing more and more in the Lord. And that's not just a thing. You know, I sometimes hear people in the West, when they talk about growing in the Lord, they talk, they're thinking about something that goes on in their mind alone. And yes, we should grow in the Lord in our minds. But this is not just a thing in your mind. It will change your life. When you're close to Jesus, it has to change your life. And that your latter works to see the first. You would think after that kind of a commendation, what on earth could Jesus say wrong about this church? But yet he has a rebuke just like he had for Pergamum. And so we keep going. He says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate. There it is again, just like in Pergamum. It's not the whole church. But he has something against this amazing church. He says, I have something against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. So there's a specific woman in their midst. Now, uh, you know, there's disagreement. Was her name actually Jezebel? My feeling is her name wasn't actually Jezebel. That would just be too kind of, you know, almost perfect. I, I think it's probably symbolic, of course. Uh, you know, Jezebel was Ahab's wife in the Old Testament. She was a wicked queen who brought idolatry into the country. I think it's a, a symbolic name that this is what this woman is like spiritually. But it could be her real name too. It doesn't really matter. But it's a specific woman in the church that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice those two things again. Remember those two things from Pergamum? Sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. These two things. This is a great church. Look at all they're doing, taking care of the poor, reaching out to the lost. They're generous. They're joyful. They're growing. You'd say there's nothing wrong with this church. Yes, there is. There are two things that Jesus cannot tolerate. He says you are tolerating that woman in your midst who's teaching Christians that it's okay to engage in idolatry, and it's okay to engage in sexual immorality. Now look at what Jesus says next. Verse 21. I gave her time to repent. Oh, even the worst of us. There's always time to repent. Isn't he amazing? You can repent right now today if the Holy Spirit is convicting you here this morning. But you think, I'm just too far. I've messed up too many times. You can always repent. This woman Jezebel, Jesus says, I've been giving her time to repent. But she hasn't been, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Now look at what happens, he says next. And again, this is one of those verses that people like to forget about who have a very kind of one-sided picture of Jesus. Look what he says next. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. How many of you would like to hear Jesus saying that about you? I'm, I'm going to throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Now again, a lot of commentators and Christians, they go, okay, no, no Jesus wouldn't do that. Now, first of all, Jesus would do that. Acts chapter 5, what did he do to Ananias and Sapphira? We have to remember, Jesus is, oh, he is so forgiving and loving and gracious and merciful. He's amazing, and he is holy. 
He is to be feared and loved. Not feared in a bad way, not the way you fear a bad father, but feared in the sense of awe and feared in the sense of holiness actually matters in our lives. But a lot of commentators and Christians, they look at that and they say, surely that must all be symbolic. Jesus actually wouldn't do that to Christians. And actually, it's not symbolic. Look what he says in the very next line. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches minds and hearts. This is a prophetic word, and the point is, Jesus wants to show the other churches that he means what he says. So remember, these churches are getting all the letters to the other churches, right? Because all seven churches are getting the whole book of Revelation. The whole book of Revelation is a letter to all these churches. So they're not just getting a little snippet that's to them. They're getting all the letters, and John knows that. They're supposed to be learning from each other's letters, right? Now John writes prophetically, and so the other churches are reading this about Thyatira. Oh, this is a good church. This is amazing. And then he reads about this woman Jezebel, and they, some of them will know actually who this woman is. Now think about that. Now what happens now as they watch and then they hear that woman just got very, very, very sick. And the people that were in her group that were listening to her, Jesus says, I'm going to throw them into great tribulation. Terrible things are going to happen in their lives. Terrible things. Terrible things are going to happen in their families. Some of them, their homes maybe are going to burn down. I don't know what it is. Terrible things are going to happen. I'm going to strike her children dead. Some of them even are going to die. Some of these people that are listening to her teaching and engaging in this kind of behavior are actually going to die. Now think of the fear of the Lord that's going to come on those other churches and all the churches will know. All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to what? Your beliefs? Your works. Why again? It's not about earning something with Jesus. But this is Jesus speaking to us. When you believe in Jesus, an actual belief will transform a life. There will be works of service and love and generosity and godliness and growing. Of course, we're all weak and we all struggle. Oh, yes. And some of us are in such crushing times that really all we can do is just hang on and be loyal to Jesus. And that is our work. But Jesus says, I, I'm the one who searches hearts minds. Well, we'll come back to this, but verse 24, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not, isn't this so gracious and loving, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what I have until I come. Only hold fast on what you have till, till I come. In other words, Jesus doesn't have a long list. It's not a long list of do's. Every, some Christians get up every morning feeling condemnation. They think they've got to do 20 different things today to impress God. And I love that. I do not lay on you any other burden. Just seek after me. Hold on to me. Do right. Only hold fast what you have till I come. Well, the question I want to ask, though, now is, is something that, you know, I think a lot of us as modern Christians, when we read through these letters, the sexual immorality one, that makes sense. So we feel some conviction. Yes. That's important that we not dabble with this. That's, that's really important, okay? Um, um, but the idolatry one, I think most of us kind of check out for that one because it's like, but, you know, most of us, I, I bet the vast majority of us don't get up every morning and struggle with, I really want to worship that thing on my shelf. You know what I mean? Like, I think the vast majority of us don't walk into a mall and see a little statue of Buddha and be like, I really want to buy that thing and, and burn incense to it or something. Most of us don't struggle with that. So maybe, maybe you stop and you wonder and you go, why are these Christians struggling with this? Why does this come up to these churches 
who are doing so well in so many areas, why are they struggling with idolatry of all things? How is that even tempting to them? And of course, no doubt there's many reasons for that, complex reasons. And of course, they grew, they grew up in a very different, with a very different worldview, very different culture. So of course, for a number of reasons there, they would be more susceptible to this sort of thing than we would. We would have other things that we'd be more susceptible to. Okay? But there's one thing I really want to point out that I think... Uh, when you really understand the background of what they were going through, it really becomes very relevant to us today as well. And the thing you have to understand, I mentioned a little bit of this last week, but I, I want to show you some of the specifics here today. These people were actually under tremendous, not just persecution, but tremendous economic pressure. They were under tremendous economic pressure to engage in idolatry, okay? And the reason that is is because um, back in, in, in those days, in particular, Thyatira in particular was known for this, but this kind of thing went on in all of the Roman cities. But uh, Thyatira was, was known to be a blue-collar city. It was, it was a city, and what that means is it was a city where people worked. There was a lot of trades to, to build things and make things. That's what they were known for. People would come from all over the Roman Empire to Thyatira in particular uh, uh, for things like purple cloth. Now, that seems weird to us today. Can't you just, you know, Anybody can make purple cloth. Well, I can't, but it just seems like you could just, if you needed it, I'm sure it wouldn't be that hard, right? Or red or orange. Well, in, back in those days, it wasn't easy to make different colors. And in particular, Thyatira was known for making the best purple in the world, okay? And so that was one of the things they were famous for. So they made purple dye and all sorts of stuff, but they were famous for all kinds of other things too. And they had lots of bronze workers and tanners and even uh, bakers and cooks and people who worked with wool and all kinds of stuff, lots of trades, people who made things. And, uh, and so, so far, so good. I don't know why that would, you know, cause anybody to be an, idol, you know, an idolater, you think. Okay, well, one of the things you have to understand, though, is each of the trades in the Roman Empire in those days, uh, the trades were all not only organized, but they were controlled by what was called, what were called trade guilds, Okay. So if you wanted to be a dye maker, for example, you may, and, and probably your father had been a dye maker and your grandfather had been a dye maker and for many generations, and so now you want to grow up and you want to, you want to be good at making purple dye just like your family has been for generations, um, you can't just go to Canadian Tire and pick up the tools you need for the trade. Because the people who own all the tools for that trade are the, trade, the purple dye trade guild. Okay, so that trade guild, for whatever it was, if, whether it was the bronze workers' trade guild or the, the tanners' trade guild or the wool workers' trade guild or whatever, that guild would control all the tools. You had to go to them to get your tools. But not only did you have to go to them to get your tools, they also owned all the processes and the recipes for making whatever it is that you wanted to make. So you couldn't, you couldn't get, and they were always kept very secret, you couldn't get the recipe for purple dye, you couldn't get the processes for making whatever bronze or different things like that. You couldn't get that except through the trade guild. But even if you could figure that out, so let's say you somehow scrapped yourself together your own tools and you figured out your own recipe and it's not going to be as good as everybody else's, but there's no way I'm joining that trade guild. Well, they also controlled the marketplace. So if you wanted to go to the market and sell purple cloth, but you weren't a part of that guild, you wouldn't get stamped. You wouldn't be allowed to sell anything in the marketplace. So you had no way to make anything. You had no way to get the tools. And you had no way to sell any of your stuff unless you joined the trade guild of whatever trade it is you want to be a part of. You had to join the guild. Okay? Now, again, so far, so good. That doesn't sound so bad. What does that have to do with idolatry? The problem was in Roman times that these trade guilds were all overtly religious. Each one 
Each one was overtly, overtly religious. Each one had its own kind of, uh, like its own God that it was dedicated to. And that God would be on their insignia. And they would have all kinds of, you know, on special occasions, they would have feasts where the whole guild would get together. And they would have a large feast. But it would be, it wasn't just getting together to eat. It wasn't like just an after work party and let's eat a bunch and then go home and we'll like each other more at the end. No, no, it was, you have to think of it more like communion. It's sort of a parallel with communion, not in terms of the behavior, but in terms of the religious significance. See, when you, you know, at a prayer summit, every prayer summit, you know, every month we take communion here at Southland. And so we all take a little cracker and, and some juice. In some places they would have bread and, and, and wine. Um, but uh, whatever it is, and you, you take the bread and you, t- and you take the juice, and it's in memory of Jesus. It's actually a religious act. It's a worshipful act. It's not just eating. It's not just eating, it's a religious act, the act of taking the bread. That's why we wouldn't even want someone who's not a believer or right with Christ doesn't take communion. We'll gladly share our food with them, but don't take, don't take communion. This is a religious act. It's special. The act of eating is worship. These feasts were like that. It wasn't just getting together with a bunch of guys for pizza after work. The food itself would be dedicated. A piece of the animal would be sacrificed to an, an, to an idol and then to the idol for that trade guild. And then the food was eaten in honor of that God. And at the beginning of the, uh, of, the, of the feast, you know, you'd pour out some wine as an offering to that God, and the whole thing was to the God. And of course, these feasts often would degenerate afterwards into all kinds of debauchery and sexual immorality, which obviously was wrong. But the question for a lot of these Christians becomes now, because now actually you can start to feel why you would feel pressured to engage. Because the question now these Christians have to wrestle with is, is it okay for me to eat at those feasts? Because if I can't, that is a real problem for me in my work life. Because again, most of these people aren't growing up Christians, right? There's not a Christian memory in these cities. Most of these people are becoming Christians. And so a bronze worker or a tanner or a dye maker becomes a Christian. What's he going to do now? His whole livelihood depends on this trade guild. And now he's accepted Jesus. So you, you can see now, he's actually, when he gives his life to Jesus, he's literally giving his life to Jesus. See, we talk in the West, we talk about giving our lives to Jesus, but we think about that more as a symbolic thing, not a real thing, because none of us has to actually physically give our lives in the sense of we will lose our jobs. In some cases, maybe some people, their families might get mad at them in some cases, but even that would be pretty rare. These people are literally, when they say yes to Jesus, they're actually living what the gospel is, which is you gave your life to him. And so, but now you have this debate in the church. Well, maybe it's not so bad, right? And, and you can see uh, how teaching could creep in. And we don't know exactly what Jezebel was teaching or what this little group of Nicolaitans was teaching in Pergamum. But maybe, uh, but maybe it was something along the lines of, hey, it's actually okay to participate in those feasts because, and they might have had a number of reasons. You know what, you can participate in those feasts because, um, well, Jesus is sovereign, so it's his meat, ultimately, anyway. So, yeah, if you eat it, they're doing it to that God, but you're doing it to Jesus, so it's okay. Maybe it was something like that. Or maybe it was something along the lines of, you know, the false grace teaching we see in so many churches today, where it's like, um, you know, Jesus has forgiven you of all your sins, so even if you eat at the meal, you're already forgiven, because he's already forgiven you of all your sins, even in the future. So you just go ahead and do it, and it's already forgiven. Or maybe his grace, you just repent after, and it's okay. Whatever it is they're teaching, these people are under real pressure. Can you imagine the pressure they're under? Like, you can't work anymore if you don't 
participating in this feast, you can see why you'd have a motivation to think, well, maybe it's not so bad. Like, really, how bad is it if I just go there and eat? Maybe if I don't do the sexual immorality part, maybe if I just do the meal part and then leave. And the, and, but Jesus and John are very clear on what is the answer to this. Is it okay to participate in a feast? And the answer is absolutely no. It's absolutely no. It's not okay to participate in the feast. It's not okay to eat the meat. It's not okay to drink the wine. It's not okay to participate in these meals. Now, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, about this very same thing. And he says this, starting in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. By the way, that's the first commandment. There's a number of Christians nowadays, it's really a, a bizarre, and no scholar really goes along with it either, but they, they think that the Ten Commandments have somehow been canceled. They haven't been canceled. This is the commandment number one in the New Testament. Do not have any other gods before you. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. So he's talking here about communion. He's not talking about just eating. He's talking about, when he's talking about the body of Christ, he's talking about communion. Now he's going to compare communion to some of these idolatrous feasts. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And so Paul's point here is you say, yeah, but that's so unfair to these Christians all over just a meal, like they can't help it. Like doesn't Jesus want them to keep their jobs? And this is the thing you, that you absolutely have to understand. Giving your life to Jesus, I cannot overemphasize this in this message. The most important thing you can do in this life is not live a comfortable life. It is actually give your life over to Jesus and die for him. He died for you, now you lay your, down your life and you die for him. That's actually the most important thing. Whatever it is you're going through, Jesus says, you hang on and you stay loyal to me. It's not about whether you can keep your job. It's about, will you love me more than your life? That's how you overcome in this world. Now, the awesome thing about Jesus is, if you do, he is, he is going to defend you and watch over you and reward you in heaven forever and ever. But that's the question. Will we make the little compromises so we can live comfortable, or will we literally give our lives to Jesus and say, I will not compromise on this. You are God and you alone. Now, this is where I want to spend the last couple of minutes of this message. This brings up a whole bunch of questions because we live in a gloriously free country with people from many religions. And there are many questions that come out of what I've just said and these passages I've just looked at. Some of, them you, some of these questions you haven't had time to even think of yet. I'm going to work my way through three of them from the easiest to the hardest. But this has lots of implications for our lives here today, okay? Because we live, we live in a wonderfully free country with freedom of religion, which is so amazing, okay? But it can bring this, this into sharp relief. So let's, let's ask a couple questions. Let's start with the easy one, okay? So with this in mind, what happens if you go to work 
And many of you work in places where there are people of other religions and other faiths and other cultures. And you go into the lunchroom, let's say, and uh, your Muslim coworker and friend sits down at the lunch table and they have their lunch out and you have your lunch out. And of course, he stops to pray, let's say, his version of grace and he prays to Allah. Is it okay to sit there and eat lunch with him? And the answer is absolutely yes, okay? Some of you are going, whew, I didn't know what he was going to say there. <laughs> absolutely, you should, how else are we going to reach people for Jesus? If we can't eat with him, right? This is not, again, the parallel here, you have to remember is, the parallel here, this is not just about eating. Think of it as communion. We wouldn't share communion with a bunch of non-believers, neither would we share in you know a religious meal that's not just it's not just eating with people of other religions but a religious meal that's actually dedicated to another god the kind of their version of sort of a communion we wouldn't participate in that but to eat with someone who's praying to another god that is perfectly fine how else you can reach him for jesus we should love all people amen okay let's just take it one step further and then we'll take it to for the home run um let's imagine your muslim friend now invites you over for supper you and all your kids so you're going to go to their house, you're going to serve you a big meal, you're going to, you're going to sit down at the table, and before the meal, uh, he or she says, look, I want to pray to Allah before and, and pray his blessing on this meal. And so stops, you and all your kids are there, and prays to Allah, thanking him for the meal. Now, don't say anything out loud, because I don't want to, you know, if any of you gets it wrong, that's fine. You should never feel embarrassed anyway. But just think in your heads, can you go to this meal or can you not? Again, some of you are so worried, what is he about to say? Can you, can you go there and they're going to pray over the meal and you're all there together with your kids? Is that okay? And I would say, absolutely, yes, you can go there. Absolutely. Of course, we live, you know, this is the beauty of living in a free country is everyone should be free to follow their beliefs 100%. And to go and visit someone of another faith, I would expect... I would not expect them to pray to Jesus. I might ask for permission. Can I pray to Jesus? But, or I'm going to invite them over to my house, and next time we're going to pray for Jesus. In this house, we pray to Jesus. Amen. And I'm going to talk to them about Jesus. Amen. But I would expect that if I go there for a meal, that they're going to pray. Now, again, they're not understanding this as when I take a bite of their grilled cheese sandwich or whatever they're going to feed me, um, which I really like grilled cheese, just so you know, if it's a good one. Um, but anyway... When I take a bite of the grilled cheese, they're not taking that as, oh, ho, ho, he just ate that and worshiped to my God. They're seeing it as we had them over as a friend. So this is not an act of worship. I'm just eating with them. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So let's bring this now to the next one. There is a huge, let's talk about indigenous spiritual practices. Okay, indigenous spiritual practices. There's a, there's a huge push. Well, first of all, let me just say a few things. Again, I... First of all, I absolutely love and adore religious freedom. And that first statement up there, we as Christians should be on the forefront always of celebrating and defending every person's freedom to practice whatever religion they desire. We should even be defending and outspoken for other people's freedom. If someone wants to practice whatever religion it is, Hinduism, or, you know, in, you know, indigenous spiritualism or Islam, if they want to practice their beliefs here in this country, you know, in other words, they want to worship their God, we should stand up for them. Not just us standing up for ourselves. We should stand up for them. It's a good thing when a government allows everyone to follow their conscience, is it not? And it's really because of Christianity. Look around at the world. 
why is it that all the countries that have real religious freedom, or almost all of them, all have Christian history? Hmm. Coincidence, maybe. But anyway, um, it's not a coincidence. It says Christians have fought for that for centuries. That's just historical fact. So everybody should be free to follow their own God, and I will stand up publicly and defend anybody else's right to worship other gods, not just Christianity, okay? So that's really important. But the second thing is, we should never participate with them. I want them to have freedom to worship whatever God they want in this country, but we should never participate with them. That's what Revelation is very clear about. In any activities that seek to connect with other spirits or to worship, honor other gods, not even under the guise of cultural awareness or cultural sensitivity. I love that they have the right to practice whatever it is they want to practice in worship of their gods. But the moment someone comes to me and says, you now need to participate in that for whatever reason, I cannot because I have given my life to Jesus. He and he alone is my God, and I cannot dabble with any other. That is the clear message of both the letter to Pergamum and the letter to Thyatira. And the reason that is a very relevant thing in our culture today is there is an increasingly large push in all kinds of sectors, in the government, with government officials, in the education system, teachers, administrators. I've heard of police officers for years already who have been pressured to participate, for example, in like a sweat lodge or something. So, and again, the, and the reason always is, well, it's to promote cultural awareness, cultural sensitivity. First of all, we should be culturally aware, and we should be culturally sensitive. We should. And by the way, that includes us as Christians admitting that our government has done absolutely horrible, sinful things to the indigenous peoples, including trying to force them to forget their culture and things like that. Those were terrible, sinful, awful things. And we should be sensitive, and we should be aware. That is a very good thing. But Jesus is very clear that if cultural awareness can only be got by participating in religious activities that attempt to connect us to other spirits or to honor other gods, we cannot participate in those things. You say, but what happens? What about my career? That's not fair. What about this? I could really get into trouble. I could get people upset at me. I could maybe not get into a job. I could maybe not get into the faculty at school I want to get into, whatever it is. And you're right, that isn't fair. And you're right, that is hard. And I feel for you. And Jesus feels for you. But in the end, Jesus says, the most important thing in this life is, have you given your life to him and will you be faithful and pure to him and him alone? He is worthy of that kind of commitment. Amen? Amen? He's worthy of that. Now, some of you might be sitting there and you go, how dare you? I'm okay. I get that probably pretty much every weekend with someone in here, but <laughs> how dare you? You know, and maybe you've participated in something like this. Maybe you didn't even know better. You're, you were just under pressure. You're fearful. You don't know what to do. Everybody's doing it. Your boss tells you you have to do it. You can't get the job if you don't do it. And, you know, churches don't really talk about this, so you just kind of did it, and you didn't know. And uh, so maybe you've messed up already, or maybe, and maybe you're upset, or maybe you just feel embarrassed sitting there. Here's the amazing thing. Jesus is gracious. And if you repent, you get to start all over again. He says it over and over. Revelation 2.16, this is the one to Pergamum. Therefore, repent. In these two letters, Jesus has made a passionate appeal for one thing, and that thing is purity. Purity of our commitment to him. 
pure sexual purity and all of that. Jesus wants our passionate, loyal faithfulness and purity. And if you are a Christian and you have promised yourself to Jesus, that's what you did when you became a Christian. And he is jealous for you. So two, two things to think about. First of all, this week, Tuesday to Thursday. All day Tuesday, I'm not going to eat anything. Wednesday, I'm not going to eat anything. A whole bunch of leaders are doing it with me. All day Thursday, I'm going to break the fast on, on uh, Thursday night. Thursday at supper. And I would encourage you again. Last year, we had hundreds of people uh, join us. But let's seek the Lord and really pray. And in ourselves, pray. Lord, as the times get more and more difficult, we want to be absolutely devoted to you no matter what. We want to be passionate to you. We want to be faithful to you. We want to be pure for you. Let's seek God for purity, sexual purity, but also purity of heart and commitment to Jesus. And second of all, um, we've got a set free retreat coming up January 25th to 26th, Friday to Saturday. And, uh, and we have a whole section in there dealing with if you've you know, been involved in other kinds of spiritual practices and you get to confess that and break all kinds of uh, bonds and stuff. We have a whole section on sexual immorality. It doesn't matter how many times you've been in the set free. We, don't, we have made a policy now. We're not turning people away. We're open for business. We have moved them into the auditorium so we can have plenty of room. And uh, you can sign up and come. You can come with your cell or whatever it is. And, uh, and that would be really powerful. It's also, if you if you're want to become a member, you have to attend a set free retreat first. If you're looking to be a, become a member this next year, then uh, going to a set free is something you need to do anyway. But uh, I want you just to bow your heads with me and close your eyes and, and uh, let's, let's go to the Lord. Jesus, we love you. And we want our lives. You talk to the churches and you say, I know your works. We want our behavior to fall in line with our love for you, Jesus. We want to be a church that is pure in our commitment to you, that is pure sexually. Lord, I know there's weakness. You have all the grace in the world for weakness. Many of us struggle and struggle and struggle. You have grace for that. But where you draw the line is teaching and encouraging Christians to pursue these things. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would fill us with your grace anew and that this week and this month and this year, we're going to go on our, grow in our passion and zeal for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.